Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. My name is Claire Lehman and I am Editor-in-Chief of Quillette. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent, grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. Our podcast is a team effort and is jointly hosted by myself and Canadian editor Jonathan Kay. You can support our podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash Quillette and becoming a monthly patron. By becoming a monthly patron, you'll also receive our weekly newsletter. Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. I'm Jonathan Kay. Some of you might be familiar with Irving Kristol's definition of a conservative as a liberal who's been mugged by reality. Well, today's guest is Michael Schellenberger, a one-time progressive activist who's been mugged by reality not once, but twice. Once when it came to global warming and energy policy, and then again on the subject of homelessness. In his 2020 book, Apocalypse Never, he wrote about his first metaphorical mugging, which he received when he noticed how his one-time fellow environmentalists were so doctrinaire about attacking capitalism and industry that they opposed promising strategies to reduce the world's carbon footprint, especially nuclear energy production and natural gas. Now, in a new book, Schellenberger looks at urban policy in regard to homelessness, law enforcement, drug policy, and mental health. And while the book's title is provocative, San Francisco, Why Progressives Ruin Cities, his argument is nuanced. Schellenberger uses his home of San Francisco as a case study in how many progressive activists oppose humane and practical policies such as shelters and psychiatric care because they conflict with utopian ideas that are ideologically fashionable but functionally impossible. I spoke to Michael Schellenberger last week over Skype. Here are excerpts from our conversation. I followed your career fairly closely, and I know that in terms of advocacy for the environment, which I guess is your main focus, I think you gradually became disenchanted with the great becoming the enemy of the good among many progressives. They were so puritanical about their approach that they often would reject pretty good solutions, uh, nuclear power being one example. Is there something analogous going on in the realm of, say, addressing the homeless problem, where the perfect solution would be if everybody had permanent housing, and that becomes the utopian vision, and then the demand that that become the all-encompassing objective then gets in the way of more practical solutions? Yeah, that's a great way of saying it. I definitely see Apocalypse Never in San Francisco as companion books in the sense that they're both describing the ways in which progressives, the radical left, but also just ordinary liberals tear down institutions that civilization needs to function out of a kind of utopianism. So in the case of Apocalypse Never, the signature case is that we shut down nuclear power plants or we didn't build them sufficiently to meet supply when we discovered that it was superior to all other forms of energy that we were going to do a lot of nuclear in the West. And the left said no, and we ended up doing a lot less. Similarly, we did the same thing, and it's eerily similar on psychiatric hospitals, really following World War II, but accelerating in the 60s to the cheerleading of the most influential intellectuals in the world, including Michel Foucault and Thomas Saz and Artie Lang and these other figures I describe in San Francisco. Yeah, they definitely always have a utopian alternative. In the case of nuclear, the alternative is a world of low energy, renewable powered. Think Elizabethan England, really a return to the womb, a return to Ewok Village. And for mental illness, the idea is to return to a society where, to paraphrase Foucault, the mad wander freely, 
really where the mentally ill are homeless, but sort of taken care of by the community, not the nightmarish situation that we actually have on the ground. So I think you're right on to spot that as the parallel between the two books. Well, uh, it wouldn't be a Quillette podcast unless we talked about Michel Foucault. But there is a really interesting tie-in here. I'm looking, I have it marked here, page 105 of your book. You talk about Foucault's 1961 publication, Le Folie et la Raison. It deconstructed the idea of madness, kind of a sentimental romanticization of people who are in altered states and often very self-destructive states. The irony that I see here in Toronto, and I don't know if it's the same in San Francisco, is that some of the same, in many cases, privileged progressives who are anxious to deconstruct the idea of, say, schizophrenia or bipolar disorder, as soon as one of their own children exhibits anything like ADHD or a much more mild psychological issue, they're pretty quick to medicalize those issues. Absolutely. This is a really interesting question. So on the one hand, what you see with Foucault and other radical left critics of psychiatry and mental illness is even a denial of mental illness or calling it neuroatypical. And so on the one hand, we have that. On the other hand, we're the most psychologized, medicalized people that the world has ever seen. The use of drugs is incredibly high, not just alcohol or marijuana, but psychoactive drugs, pharmaceutical drugs, prescription drugs, very high, lots of treatment of kids, a lot of that going on. So in some ways, it's just depressingly a kind of elites wanting people they categorize as victims to be supposedly free of psychiatric care, which requires to some large extent some amount of coercion, particularly when people are getting on their meds. But at the same time, for their own kids, of course, for their own family members, they want the best available psychiatry. So I think you're right to see the contradiction there. Here in Toronto, a couple of months back, there was this homeless encampment in a park, and the people who use the park, families, were upset by it and wanted, as you describe in your book, in the case of West Coast cities in the United States, there was drug use and all sorts of dangerous stuff going on. People couldn't use the park because it was filthy and it was dangerous. And then you had people in very safe and insulated areas of the city, often very wealthy people. They'd have signs up on their front lawns that said, don't tear down encampments. People should be able to live wherever they want, which is a wonderful thing to say when you live in a a beautiful area of the city where there isn't a homeless person within a couple of miles. So the hypocrisy is rather staggering. But what struck me about San Francisco, I've been to San Francisco, and it's sort of like Vancouver in some ways, where you have some very wealthy people working and living in some parts of the city, cheek by jowl. How do progressives deal with the cognitive dissonance when they walk outside, they see, I'm not exaggerating here, there's people defecating in the streets, there's people they actually inject pretty much right where they buy the stuff. How do they deal with what they see in front of them and the way it conflicts with their ideological commitments to some of these policies we're talking about? There's two different groups of people, right? There's definitely the hardcore activists, and then there's sort of your average liberal voter that keeps reelecting the people in power who refuse to take action. Both groups hold victim ideology. They think that you can divide people in the world into the category of victims or oppressors, and to victims we should give everything and demand nothing. Demanding something from them, such as sobriety before they get housing, would be immoral, cruel, and that's held by both groups. But definitely the leaders, the more hardcore, the ideologues that advocate for these policies, there's something else, which is that the system is really evil. 
the system cannot do anything to help people and that the only real victims are victims of the system. And so that's why you get these elaborate steeplechases to try to find and explain how it is that, you know, a five-year-old girl killed by gun violence in a city is somehow a victim of structural racism. At one point you have somebody who tells you the real enemy here is racism, sexism, and capitalism or whatnot. And so the only way to tackle homelessness is to tackle these these huge issues, which again, it's the great becoming the enemy of the good, because if building a homeless shelter is seen as an excuse not to end racism, you're not going to build homeless shelters. This is one of the contradictions here I don't think people realize is that among progressive politicians, I don't think I appreciated this until I read your book, there's actually a bias against building homeless shelters. And it seems to be a sort of U-shaped thing where they either want people in permanent housing, which has proved something of a pipe dream, maybe you could explain that. But on the other hand, they're also not averse to them being in encampments and being unsheltered because there's this idea that, well, at least that will shock the conscience and make us do something. Or they imagine these encampments are sort of like proto-communes of some kind. Uh, You see that here in Toronto. I guess it's one of the things that led to what happened in Seattle, which we can talk later. Is that something that, that you've taken for granted for a while, or is it only something you discovered when you wrote the book, this antipathy toward building homeless shelters among progressives? Thank you for drawing attention to it. It's a, it was a big find, and it took a lot to get there. It's hidden, but basically, yeah, I mean, the bottom line is that we don't have enough shelters for homeless people in San Francisco because we don't build them, and it's the homeless advocates themselves that have deprived the funding for shelters ostensibly so the money can be redirected to single-unit apartments that cost $750,000 each and could never solve the problem. So it was the same as discovering that the people that prevent emissions from declining by using natural gas or nuclear are the same people who claim the world is ending from climate change. The so-called advocates on the issue are the reason that there's been no progress on the issue. And it's like one of those things, it's like a horror movie where it's like you get to the middle of the horror movie and you you discover the box of photographs that reveals that the person you thought was the good guy is, is running the whole thing, right? Although, just to be clear, it's not a conspiracy theory. Like, you're not alleging these people are hurting homeless people deliberately. They right. are applying an ideology they think that ultimately will be helpful. Absolutely. And I ultimately conclude that it's pathological altruism. But there is something, I think, sociopathic going on in actually making those demands, knowing full well that you're not going to have shelter space for people year in, year out, out of some Machiavellian calculation that it's going to result in you getting your way in some utopian sense somewhere down the line. When you press them on it, they are basically forced to admit that to do what they want to do, it would take decades. And of course, it's not even that, because... There's no scenario in which you could just give housing to 150,000 drug addicts on the street and make it work. To be fair, this doctrine of housing first, I think it's called, is sort of at the center of progressive policy. My understanding is that the early results on housing first, this is the idea that before you address mental illness, before you address drug use, you give the person a home and that that becomes a catalyst for helping the person in all sorts of other ways. It's not a crazy idea, and at least... In the initial stages, there was some evidence that it worked. What sometimes works, and I describe a case of it in San Francisco, is to help a person with schizophrenia get their schizophrenia or other serious mental illness under control with the use of medicines, a social worker, 
community, you know, friends and family, and their own apartment. That actually does work if you do it right, but it requires a significant amount of involvement in that person's life, including sometimes coercion or involuntary hospitalization. And in those circumstances, it can work. That's not what is being proposed or has been done. What's been proposed and has been done is giving apartment units to people with serious addiction who are not taking their meds. And that has absolutely been a disaster. People die from drug overdose or poisoning in their apartments. Mentally ill people or addicted people, and sometimes they're the same and sometimes it's impossible to tell the difference, will store their stuff in these apartments but still live in the open drug scene or what we euphemistically refer to as homeless encampments because they want to be really close to the drugs. A lot of hotel rooms were trashed during the pandemic when they were given out willy-nilly to people without any supervision. At bottom, what doesn't work is to remove all constraints or any responsibility or any obligations from people who are being given their own apartment or hotel room. One of the things that was sobering here in Toronto, there was this whole drama where there was this encampment in a park and eventually the police broke it up. (laughs) Needless to say, when the police broke it up, it was treated like the Nazis invading Poland by the progressive press here. But one inconvenient fact that was glided over was all of the people who were removed from the encampment were given a shelter spot. And my understanding, which is consistent with what you report, is very few people took the local government up on that offer because if you go to a shelter, you can't do drugs. Things like the sex trade become more difficult. And by the way, I don't want to stereotype all homeless people as afflicted by these problems. But for some people, and you tell their stories in the book, the reason they're on the street is because someone says, well, you can come to the shelter, but you can't do meth. They're not going to go to the shelter. But on the other hand, I'm not sure conservatives have a good answer to the problem of drug addiction either. And certainly the war on drugs, which you describe at some length in the book, it's not exactly like that was a ringing success. What is the answer when it comes to the intertwining of addiction and homelessness? It's helpful to actually start by saying what we know works, because what's extraordinary is when you look around the world at what different countries do that handle this problem well, the Netherlands, Germany, France, Japan, it's the same things. This is not one of these things where it's like there's just a lot of random different ways of things that work. That's just propaganda and misinformation. And the word homeless is misinformation. It's a word. It's propaganda word designed to trick your brain into confusing people that are poor and just need somewhere to be temporarily, maybe escaping an abusive family member with somebody who's suffering serious mental illness or addiction and not getting the treatment they need. So basically, the solution to this problem is pretty straightforward. You cannot allow public camping and have a civilized society and take care of sick people. It's simply incompatible. You must require that people go into shelter In the shelter, they should receive immediately medical care, and that medical care should include a diagnosis by a psychiatrist of whether there's underlying mental illness or addiction. If there is, people should be immediately referred to getting the care they need, either psychiatric or a group home or rehab. If they refuse, I don't think that you have to coerce them to do it if they're not breaking any other laws, but if they refuse... And then go out and try to sleep on the street. Then you need to use involuntary means. That's the same everywhere. It's shelter first, housing earned, and universal psychiatric care. Progressive response, we we don't have the mental health care system that we need. They're right. We need to have a proper psychiatric and addiction care system. That's obvious. You need to have shelters. That's obvious. You need to have group homes. My aunt had schizophrenia. 
She lived in a group home. She had great outcomes, never was homeless, never addicted to drugs, never became a sex worker, as far as the family knows, but was absolutely had schizophrenia and it was difficult to treat. And she was an extremely difficult person, but we dealt with her in a pro-human way. So this is not rocket science. This is something that we know how to do. If you're a regular listener to the Quillette podcast, you'll be familiar with BetterHelp, one of our original advertisers. Well, thanks to everything that's happened since early 2020 and the stresses that the pandemic has put on everyone, the online therapy services at BetterHelp are more relevant and in demand than ever. BetterHelp will help you unlock the tools you need to help with motivation, depression, anxiety, battling your temper, stress, dealing with insecurity in relationships or at work, whatever you need. Especially at a time like this, no one should be anxious about admitting that they're going through normal human struggles, because you deserve to be happy. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist. And you don't even have to see anyone on camera if you don't feel comfortable doing so. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can start communicating with your therapist in under 48 hours. Join the millions of people who are seeing what therapy is really about. And Quillette Podcast listeners get 10% off their first month by visiting betterhelp.com slash Quillette. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Quillette. Thanks to BetterHelp for their sponsorship. And now back to the Quillette Podcast. What you're describing here sounds like a very humane approach. It's kind of nuts to me that what you're describing is also denounced in some circles, maybe San Francisco, for instance, as conservative. You're, you know, you're, you're talking about expanded health care, you're talking about shelters, all of these involve a lot of money. But because you're not focusing immediately, and primarily on building housing, you get denounced as a reactionary. In fact, there's one point in your book where you were interviewing somebody I think, if I remember correctly, the person cut you off and said, well, just by talking about this, we're risking violence against homeless people. And this gets back to what you're saying about victims and oppression. There's this idea, and perhaps this person was acting on this idea, that there's just bands of people going around beating the crap out of homeless people, when in fact, the primary threat of violence amongst homeless people is from other homeless people. Yeah, that's right. And that's a very important passage in San Francisco. It was a very important passage for me personally. So in fall of 2019, I wrote an article for Forbes called Why California Keeps Making Homelessness Worse. In it, I quote people that work directly with street addicts every day in Los Angeles, the two people that literally do the most to work with those people. And they represent totally different ideological perspectives. One is very Christian oriented around 12 step. The other one is totally harm reduction, very left wing. I was like, what percentage of the people you work with are addicts? And they were like, what do you mean? It's everybody. They were like, there's nobody on the street that's just here because they couldn't afford the rent. It's everybody has addiction and or mental illness. And after I reported it, one of the most prominent homeless advocates in Los Angeles accused me of writing it to make money and cause violence against homeless people. It was bizarre. I mean, I was just kind of like, what are you talking about? Like, I wrote this piece because I actually care about this issue. I care about these people. I'm really worried and sad and heartbroken about it. Of course, I knew, you know, it didn't have anything to do with me. Um, It just had to do with him defending an ideology. Well, the same thing happened. I interviewed a former elected member of the city council in San Francisco, the Board of Supervisors, Democratic Socialist, ultimately lost power. But she 
said the same thing to me. She said, you know, I'm concerned, Michael, when you when you ask questions like, and the question was, how does such a progressive city allow so much suffering? She said, when you when you when people ask questions like that, violence against homeless people goes up. I was really shaken by this. I was really upset by it. And of course, I knew intellectually that this is the same BS that I would get on all sorts of issues. The radical left would just attack me personally when they were upset by my research, basically. And that's what I'm talking about the environment now. But, you know, so I was like, I knew what was going on, but I was still shaken by it. And it was important because for me, it was like, aha, if I'm shaken by it, then ordinary people... (laughs) Or whatever, people that that are much less disagreeable than me, since I'm also an extremely disagreeable person, and I'm financially independent, I'm not going to be fired for what I write and say and think, then other people that are much more vulnerable than me, I can see why the situation has only gotten worse for 30 years. I can see why the same policies are in place. It's because these guys are able to basically shout them down. After I got over being like shocked and upset that people would say such nasty things, I felt really inspired because then I was like, well, if that's all it is, then all I need to do is publish a book that actually says what's really going on and stand up to the bullies. And then I felt like, you know, then it's just a matter of time because the evidence is just overwhelming. Really, the main obstacle to doing it are a bunch of people that basically scream and make threats. Once you defeat those people, then really you have a broad societal consensus for doing the right thing. You have one guy who keeps reappearing. His name is Tom Wolfe. No E at the end, unlike the famous author. Very sad story. He had a job and a family, and I think he was prescribed painkiller medication, and like hundreds of thousands of other Americans got addicted, ended up on the street. He's one of your sources and is very candid with you about what homeless life is like. We live in a society that's very stratified by class. How did you approach your interviews, especially how did you get around the risk of being condescending? There's all sorts of sensitivities there. How did you go about that task? I knew right away that this book could not rest on my field work with homeless people or with people we call homeless. And and the reason for that is that I'm just I'm not an ethnographer. And even if I spent even if I spent a year really doing intensive field work, it would not be as credible and to me as the existing ethnographies. So really, I rely on three major anthropologists or sociologists who live with homeless, who worked with them, and they were the most honest people too. I mean, there's the actual recovering addicts, like Tom, you mentioned, there's the people on the street who I did interact with a lot, interviewed a lot of, and then there's the people that are the experts in what's going on on the street. And they were amazing because they were not trying to engage in, even though they had radical left politics, And in some cases where homelessness advocates, they did not engage in the big lie, which is that these people just can't afford the rent. These are really interesting relationships for me. These people, they are reading the book right now. I'm expecting someone will respond. It'll be very interesting. I mean, I will say the progressive response to this book is really different than the response to Apocalypse Network. Apocalypse Network, it was just kill the witch and Schellenberger has to be stopped, and we have to censor him and whatever it takes. This, I'm getting emails, and there's Twitter interactions with people that are socialist progressives who are like, yeah, obviously you're describing something real. (laughs) You know, obviously there's a problem, and your idea of universal psychiatry and shelter first is interesting. A lot of what you say about San Francisco is going to sound familiar to anybody in Vancouver. 
Yeah. Vancouver also happens to have a very high cost of living, but it also has an area, I think that's analogous to Tenderloin, it's called the uh, downtown east side, magnet for many of the most tragic backstories in Western Canada. Vancouver also happens to be an incredibly liberal city, decriminalization of drugs, harm reduction, housing first, all of these are popular ideas, yeah. and you're getting exactly the same tragedies going on there. San Francisco and Vancouver, to some extent, and you describe this in the book, they become magnets for homeless people or who are at risk of, of, of homelessness because they already have so many homeless people. You describe this weird thing in the book where because there's so much drugs and there's a sex trade and um, all these liberal policies, it's just like, come here and you're going to get what you want, not what you need, but what you want. To a certain extent, is it difficult to make statistical generalizations when you have the snowball effect Places that have a lot of homelessness end up having more homelessness because other homeless people are just attracted there? The right category or concept, I think, or and even the right level of analysis for this whole problem, I believe, is what European researchers call the open drug scene. It's an open-air drug market in which addicts and people with mental illness live because they're so addicted and they're like around, they just, everybody knows what they are, right? We call them homeless encampments euphemistically. I think the right term is open drug scene. They exist near train stations. They exist in parks. They were in Zurich, Frankfurt, Vienna, Lisbon, Amsterdam. They studied them closely. We had them one in Times Square that was famously, you know, in the 70s and 80s, that was famously closed. They're the same everywhere. Some are crack. Some are heroin. Some are meth. Some are fentanyl. In some places, there's more white people. In some places, there's more black people. There's usually sex work going on. There's usually problems with the neighbors. There's usually theft, people stealing to support their habits. There's usually outreach workers trying to help people but not doing anything really to help them. Whether it's Crackalandia in Sao Paulo or Times Square, they're fundamentally structurally the same and the solutions are the same. You have to shut them down. They have to be shut down for civilization to function. So there's some differences. You know, some places they had to redevelop the whole neighborhood. They had to change. They had to improve the housing stock so that it wasn't just addicts there. They had to expand shelters. They had mobile clinics, and almost in all of them, there was a combination of police and social services. There was methadone or suboxone or substitutes for opioids. They had sufficient shelter beds to make people go into shelters. Some people were arrested. Some people went to jail. There are some people that do need to go to prison and jail because they're doing very bad, violent things in those places. But it's basically the same. And yeah, there's sometimes there's more mentally ill there than in other times. But it's basically the same thing everywhere. And the same and the thing that prevents societies from shutting them down in every city and every nation is the left to think that they should accept people who are like, I don't want to go in the shelter. I just want to use heroin right here on the street. And there's a, a fair number of people in societies that are like, we should just let them. And the only thing that, that changes it is when a political consensus is formed that, that, that maintaining the situation is just completely unviable and inhumane. So close with a question about another city, which is Seattle. As you write, for several months, a big part of that downtown became this weird, anarchic, no-go zone one of the weirdest developments in recent American urban history. You had an interesting line there. You say a lot of people don't realize how fragile the state's monopoly on violence actually is. Could you talk a little bit about 
that concept and how it now applies on the American West Coast in these highly progressive cities? You're describing an extremely alarming development in the breakdown of our civilization, which was that last summer in reaction to the George Floyd killing and protests, a group of out of town, mostly white, unaccountable anarchists were allowed to take over a neighborhood in downtown Seattle by the city council and the police. And I'm proud to say I'm the first person to get the full story from the police chief, Carmen Best, the first African-American woman that ever was a police chief in Seattle. She was forced out by the city council after she shut down this so-called autonomous zone. And she did so after two young African-American men were killed There were rapes going on. The organizers of this zone had invited in drug addicts and so-called homeless to live there. And the situation spiraled out of control, as anybody, as everybody would have predicted that it would have when you basically withdraw police from a neighborhood. She was still bewildered by it. When I interviewed her six months, you know, eight months after the fact, and I'm still baffled by it. How did it happen? Basically, people on the city council, but certainly had to have been greenlit by the mayor and the police themselves participated in just basically withdrawing from a precinct building in which they operated. And there were sort of justifications given that, you know, it was at risk or that the activists wanted it, but they did it. And it was, it's insane. I worry sometimes when you describe these things too much that it makes them sound more rational than it was. It wasn't. It was insane. It was a collective act of insanity. It was a moral panic, part of the broader panic that existed. I mean, I look back at that whole period and you just look at all these things, John, and you certainly have done a great job writing about it, describing it. It's the speed at which these decisions are being made. Cities across the United States cut the funding for police. That actually occurred. It's not a conspiracy theory. It occurred. In in Seattle, they lost hundreds of police. They're losing police in cities around the United States. And shockingly, homicides rose 30%. So out of Black Lives Matter resulted in the deaths of hundreds of black people. It is just a scandal that nobody has properly reported on that the politicians have not had to deal with, that voters have not processed. Black Lives Matter directly led to the defunding of police and to the killing of black people. And it needs to be said like that, and it still makes me extremely angry. It's three chapters in the book. Now we're getting gaslit on it. You know, I literally, I hear from my progressive friends. No, Michael, nobody was saying to defund the police. Are you kidding me? They literally said defund the police. (laughs) <laughs> literally what they said. In Oakland and Seattle and San Francisco and all these places. That, yeah. And then in some cases they pulled back because they realized that it was insane. But you were in a massive police morale crisis. The Seattle example is particularly good because it's like we need to listen to black people. We, we especially need to listen to black women unless they're counseling against surrendering large parts of cities to urban warlords. Then they <laughs> they need to quit their jobs. It does seem like a state of insanity. And you're right there in the middle of it in San Francisco, but people are still moving there. The housing prices is still high. People still want to live in San Francisco. You're living the dream. How paradoxical is this life that you yourself are, are leading? Well, it's, it's not just paradoxical. It creates a real moral dilemma for me. I mean, I... I'm one of the half of the people who live here that thinks about moving. My wife doesn't want to move, but I mean, I don't feel moral living here. I feel like I'm living in apartheid South Africa. I feel like my taxes are supporting something immoral. Personally, I avoid it. I live in the Berkeley Hills. I live in a very nice neighborhood. I'm very lucky. I got bought my house at the bottom of the market. 
You know, I have people on Twitter who still send me photos of how beautiful their homes are. And they go, what are you talking about? It's beautiful here. I'm like, yeah, I have a beautiful home too. But what's happening on the streets is immoral. It's depriving of us of our humanity. People are being unnecessarily killed or allowed to die because we let them use poisons out of their mental illness. People are being killed because we're not funding the police properly. So I had a guy send me in a stupid little bicycle pants, a photo of him biking near the Golden Gate Bridge in response to some of my Twitter on this. It's like living in, you know, late Rome or something where you feel like professional managerial class just really don't give a shit. You know, they really don't care. Now, I mean, that's dark, but there is another side to it, which is that people are very unhappy. There is positive political organizing going on, including organizing that I'm involved in to organize parents of kids addicted to hard drugs, parents of kids killed by drugs, recovering addicts. Looks like they are going to succeed. They're, they're going to have a recall vote on the district attorney of San Francisco. A radical left district attorney, I think, is probably going to succeed. And so, you know, when I do the math on the politics of it, I can certainly see how San Francisco could swing back into the hands of moderates within a year or two years. Look, we're in the beginning, obviously, of a massive backlash against cancel culture, against woke religion. My friend John McWhorter's book has been a huge bestseller, Woke Racism. We're in the midst of a big backlash against the radical left because I think there is so much pent up upset about what's been happening. Michael Schellenberger's new book is called San Francisco, Why Progressives Ruin Cities. Thanks so much for being on the Quillette Podcast and congratulations on your book. Thanks, John. Great, as always, talking with you. If you would like to support Quillette, please consider becoming a patron. Head to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Quillette. If you haven't already, follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Do you like what you're hearing? Perhaps you would like to read more about the issues in today's discussion. Head to quillette.com where you will find more content.